This episode of Popcorn Poops is brought to you by Audible.com. Please visit audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops for a 30-day trial of their audiobook subscription service. When you sign up, you'll even receive a free audiobook that's yours to keep whether or not you continue with Audible after your trial has expired. That's audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops for your free audiobook. We are the Pumpkin Poops. Welcome to Pumpkin Poops, the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet. My name is Jessica, and with me, as always, is my super ghoulish husband, Dustin. Oh, thank you. I get a new adjective this week. Yeah. That's very nice. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. (laughs) As always, you can find us on our website at popcornpoops.com. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're at it, go ahead and jump on our forums where you can chat about movies or whatever else sounds like a good spooky time to you. For this month only. For this month. We don't tolerate it at any other time. No spooky talk unless it's October or maybe a few days into November. There's some grace period. I don't know. I don't agree with that. We're going to have to talk about the bylaws in the (laughs) the forums because I think spooky talk is appropriate all year round. Okay. Anyway, speaking of spooky, it's October and that means we are not the popcorn poops. We are the pumpkin Poops. Yes, good. You got it out. I'm so proud. It's a, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of alliteration, to be fair. It's a lot of peace. It is. Uh, the Pumpkin Poops is the much more frightening orange-tinted version of our regular selves. Yes. And this year, uh, as Pumpkin Poops, we are covering sci-fi horror movies for the length of October. Yes, and we've had a really good time so far. What have we done so far? We did... The, th- the first week we did... The Thing, and last week we did The Fly, and this week we're abandoning our thes. Yeah. Yeah, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Because this week we're watching Ridley Scott's 1979 film, Alien. As part of our month of science fiction horror. Yes. Which is our theme. I already said that. Did you? I did. (laughs) But thanks for helping me out. (laughs) If you're going to sync the movie with us, pause as soon as the title card reading a Brandywine Ronald Shoeset production completely fades away. away. Yes, it doesn't really fade to black. It fades into the star field at the beginning of the film. While you are syncing, I would have Dustin read you a fantastic review, but we don't have any. Guess what, Jokers? We don't have any. So, the joke's really on you, is it not? So, yeah. We would really love some reviews. Um, we'll read them on the show, whether or not they're five stars. Though we, we do, do, we do prefer, prefer. five star reviews, but we would also prefer you be honest. So we're that's, we're torn. That's true. We are, that's we are true. Torn. Anyways, it's time to start the movie. Sinkers, press play at the beep after the countdown. Ready? Three, two, one. And we're off. So this is your pick this week. It is my pick. As you said before. As I said before. And I so kindly repeated. Oh, thanks. Just now, as you heard. Uh-huh. Um, why did you pick this movie? Um, just briefly. One word. <laughs> one word? One word. I only get one word? Yes. Um, Ripley. Oh, okay. Mine would be Chestburster or maybe... Face hugger. So, They're compound wait words. Wait a minute. You get to do compound words? Well, but yes. <laughs> In the case of chest burster and you or face hugger. You get to do hugger, hyphenated words? Those aren't hyphenated. 
they're one solid word. Uh, chestburster's gonna be hyphenated. No, no, ma'am. <laughs> no way. I don't. I don't buy that for a second. Chestburster, one word. Facehugger, one word. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll go consult my MLA handbook for you and uh, let you know how wrong you are. But we, we, whatever. We did. We did decide to finally end the thes for this month because we could have continued the thes with the thing, the fly. Thank God this isn't called the alien, mm-hmm. but it could have been called the alien. It also could have been called Star Beast, which was its original title. Yes, it could <laughs> have you, been called Star Beast. Isn't that awful? It's kind of fucking terrible, right? <laughs> if this movie was called Star Beast. Well, it just makes it seem like it's a title that screams, I'm a B movie and I don't care. Like it's it's Oh, by the way, I love the I love the the letters in the opening there. Oh, I they, do. That's a that's an ongoing theme with our movies this month is that the, the title cards of all these movies are just fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I love how we set up our exposition here, where where we know that uh, 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 that we've got the commercial towing vehicle, the Nostromo, 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 mm-hmm. um, and that the crew has seven. The cargo is a refinery processing twenty million tons of mineral ore and the course is returning to earth and they just tell us our exposition right there with no capital letters and just leave it alone and uh and that's it and they're they're ready they're ready for the movie and they aren't gonna give us a bunch of bullshit like we're just gonna dive right into it look at this production design inside this ship holy crap it's just like I think that this movie really wears its its influences on its sleeve for the most part. And I think that just looking down these hallways, the, if, if the first thing that jumps into your head isn't Star Wars, you're fucking wrong. Or you haven't seen Star Wars. Or you haven't seen Star Wars. And then you look at stuff like this, the much more sterile, you know, kind of hospital mm. white, uh, albeit you know, very technologically advanced, obviously, yeah. uh, sets. And, and it's the, super 2001. Yeah, the first thing that should jump into your head is, is Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, we've got this aesthetic idea of the used future that mm-hmm. I think Star Wars really popularized two years before this came out. Uh, and I think that you could argue that this movie kind of improves on that aesthetic, Um I think that stuff in in on the Nostromo looks even more dingy, even more used, but in that style that Star Wars kind of, in some ways, created, uh, and that I I really appreciate the the aesthetic of. Um, I don't think that the 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 sterile, clean, hospital white, uh, so to speak, stuff. I don't know that it necessarily tops Stanley Kubrick's production design in Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey because that's just you know. A level beyond. Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, of course, Ridley Scott said that his two main inspirations for this, or his, he had three inspirations for this movie, and they were, in fact, Star Wars, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and the third was uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay, well, I mean, I get two of those. I, I do, too. Like, And that's the thing that throws me, is that I, I try to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre in this, and the only thing that, the only thing that I can think of is, like, the weird water and chains room. And I'm like, maybe okay. that one, maybe, maybe that, that, one, that scene. one scene. I mean, I guess, you know, the, the running and hiding and something is coming to get you, I guess. Right. I, I guess there just wasn't, wasn't a lot of that yet. 
mm-hmm. that didn't exist a lot yeah, yet. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's why he he called that as a as a inspiration is because they're just I guess there just weren't that many slashers and stuff to choose from before this movie at this point. So. I, think, I think we missed it. I wish I had pointed it out. But as the camera's kind of wandering, kind of floating around this ship uh, in this opening sequence, uh, we can see a Krupp's brand coffee grinder mm-hmm. mounted to a wall somewhere, which is actually the same model of Krupp's coffee grinder that became Mr. Fusion in Back to the Future Part 2. That's a very specific detail. <laughs> um, please remember this scene as later when I bombard you with lots of theory that you don't want to hear about. We're going to talk about the birthing process a lot. And this sure. is this is one of those scenes where, this, where we have a visual birth going on here into the womb of mother. That slow dissolve, that cross dissolve. It's... Um, I think this movie, for the most part, like stuff like that, choices like that are really good. Like that really slow, I would even call it pregnant, mm. that pregnant dissolve right there. Let's use lots of those adjectives. Yeah. Like, what did you call me at the beginning of the show? What? Gr- ghoulish? Ghoulish? No. I'm talking about pregnant as an adjective. Oh, okay. Do you like it? Yeah, because it's going to tie into all my all my oh, uh, okay. Freudian commentary well, and stuff first, that I'm going to Well, the first one awake is John Hurt. Uh, playing, oh God, what's his character's name? Um, here it is. Here's my geek card. You can take it and turn it away. Kane, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, John Hurt, my, my, my main observation from that scene is that John Hurt has some ill fitting tidy whities and some long ass nipples. <laughs> I mean, that's what you came away with. From that I know thing? that he can't do much about the nipples, but man, Get a get a grip on your <laughs> underwear, sir. Yeah, there's a there's a through line here of ill fitting underwear, isn't there? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. Yes, one of our uh, our, our our protagonist, if you will, although you wouldn't be able to tell from the first um, half of the, the movie. first half of the movie. Yeah. yeah, she's very very much kind of blends in with the crew. I think that's I think this movie does a really good job of that too. Is not making a like a main character obvious yeah, mm-hmm. in the first parts. Cause there are parts of this movie where you think that Kane is the main character, John True. Hurt's character. Mm-hmm. And then there are parts where you think that Dallas yeah, is the main character the played by Tom Skerritt. Um, and I don't think that there's a moment in the movie that feels like Sigourney Weaver's character, uh, Ellen Ripley is the main character until she's the fucking main uh, yeah, character. Yeah, right? I would say that too. That Yeah, that was a note I had where it, it's just interesting how they downplay her for so much of the movie and that they really focus on on the team as a whole, you know? Yeah. Uh, the the crew as a whole. Um, and it's, it's cool because like there are movies where you can do that where it's kind of about the group and it's not about individual characters. They're almost, I think it's really hard to find examples of stories that don't have protagonists and that are good stories. Um, I think that's really hard to find, but there are a lot of examples out there of, of directors or authors who, who do a really great job of ensemble uh, pieces where they focus yeah. on the group. 
Um, and the first half of this movie feels like that, where we sort of bounce around. It's like we've got like a a third person um, omniscient presence or something, POV, right? If yeah. we're going to talk writer talk, then like it almost feels like we're over the shoulder of just everybody at any given yeah. point. Yeah, the, the audience is God, mm-hmm. as it were, where yeah. we... we I think the only perspective that we don't get is that of the uh, um, the, the robot. xenomorph. Oh, or the robot. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily true because I think do we have we have a couple of lone moments with him where we where we can we say do. we're over his shoulder. We do, and there's kind of they're kind of strange moments because once you watch this movie through one time, and you once you realize once you are are it is revealed that Ash played by. Ian Holm uh, is in fact an android or a, or a damned robot, mm-hmm. as I think Parker calls him. <laughs> damned robot. A damned robot. Uh, I think that it's strange to go back and rewatch this movie and to see moments where he's alone and like emoting mm-hmm. by himself and reacting yeah. to things as a human by himself. Which which uh, confuses the audience. It leads us to believe that we're supposed to sympathize with that character. I think and- so, yeah. And th- there's... And there's kind of a disconnect, and I, granted, I understand that Prometheus is supposed to be a prequel, not prequel, to Alien, um, but Michael Fassbender's character, David, I think, in Prometheus, acts much more robotic than Ash in mm. this movie, than yeah. Ian Holm does in this movie. Uh, I think it's pretty clear, and, and uh, granted, we're, we're supposed to know that he's an android from the outset in Prometheus, mm-hmm. um, and that... I don't know that that should make a difference. I think the only thing that should make a difference is the fact that Prometheus takes place before this, so maybe technology wasn't advanced enough for the robots to really act like humans. I don't know. Is that an excuse? I'm not sure. Sure. But okay. But whatever. No, I, I do think that we kind of do get moments with him alone and get that perspective and kind of sit over his shoulder just like everyone else. Yeah, that's or true. Or the twist wouldn't work. Right. Yeah, that's true. I I agree with you. Um. So so then it can be agreed then that the only character we don't really get over the shoulder and close and personal with is the alien, but I mean that's fine. Like you don't it, even in in omniscient stories and stuff. Like you don't have to know everything about everybody. But but just the idea that we can kind of bounce around of, among most of them. Um. It seems pretty free will. Until it's not, and until all of a sudden we've got this tight, close third right over Ripley's shoulder, and that's where we stay for the rest of the movie. Um, But they do a really good job kind of of downplaying that, of not sort of sucking you in before you realize what you've gotten into. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that this movie does really well. One One of my favorite things about this movie is how it establishes the crew as blue collar workers, not scientists. And I know that there's part of the science division, Mm. but they're on a mining vessel. And the vernacular that they use and their body language, the way they dress, the way they interact with each other, the fact that they're smoking all the time. Well, Roger Ebert, he, he talked about how the cast looked so young and he said, or uh, I'm sorry, that the cast looked intentionally not young Um, that in most, in most movies like this, up to this point, the cast usually does look really young. You've got like a lot of people in spaceships who just don't really look like they should be there yet. Yeah. Um, and this movie doesn't do that. All of these actors are in their like, uh, you know, late thirties and mid forties and stuff. And, um, and Ebert claimed that this was to make the crew look like workers and not adventurers. Right. And I think that that succeeds 
completely. Like they, from from they don't even say. I mean, we get that opening text that says that they're on a mining vessel, but apart from that. I don't think that you would necessarily consider them to be blue-collar workers until you see how they interact with one another. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, you're just like, oh, these aren't scientists. These aren't spacemen. These aren't yeah. astronauts. And, and they the, make the, that I mean, the, point a few the, times. The, thing that, the, the farthest thing from your mind is that these people are astronauts. Yeah. You know? Well, and you know what that, of course, plays into for me over here. Oh, here we go again. Um, I thought, didn't we do this a couple of weeks ago? We did do this a couple of weeks ago, but this movie is just like theory, like utopia. I mean, it's just, it's just littered with everything and people have yeah, if written dissertations on it and stuff. Yeah, so if like, you're, if you're a Marxist or if you want to read it as, I mean, like I get it. Well, like, the, not just with Marxism though. Like I'm not just talking, I'm going to talk about Marxism, but I'm also going to talk about Freudian psychoanalysis theory, yeah. and I'm going to talk about feminist theory, but like with, with the worker thing, I mean, that does it just lines up really nicely with the whole marxist ideal like uh, on a large scale the ruling class i.e the company you know is exploiting the workers right turning them into commodities the computer tells us plainly the crew is expendable um an abstract for a dissertation i was reading online termed this intergalactic class warfare and i was like yeah that pretty much fits it. And like in The Thing, uh, there are other through lines showing the different levels of class tension, which is always present in, if you're going to do a Marxist reading of something. And the mechanics are constantly complaining about not getting the same share as the rest of the crew. That that bit just recurs over and over and over, as basically as long as they're alive. Um, that That even within, like you've got this, you know, the superpower, right? The company that's controlling them. And then you have all of them are workers, but even within these workers, there's class tension between them. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? Sounds solid to me. Do you want to hear more? I mean, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I'll, I'll just finish my Marxist spiel. Cause that's not the big one here. The big one is psychoanalysis. Okay. Um, but also from Marxism, the other things you're going to see are physical transformations. So humanity is lost as bodies are ruined by the very commodity that they are being paid to transport the alien, right? Right. (laughs) And the aliens are the commodities they are collecting and the workers are turned into the aliens, right? Mm -hmm. So the workers are turned into commodities, non-human objects. Well, I mean, I I think they're turned into commodities simply by virtue of the fact that once intelligent life is found, the computer's prime directive, if you want to call it that, or priority one, I think they call it in in the movie, um, is to return that life form to Earth, and the crew is therefore is then expendable at that point. Well, right. Like, it doesn't matter what happens to the crew because there is something larger uh, than the crew at stake. And what? But the commodity that they're trying to return, they think it's minerals, they think it's ore or whatever, but actually it's aliens. And because of what happens physically in this movie, when you get impregnated by an alien, like you eventually turn into an alien. Um, can we talk about the Christmas lights on the bottom of that yeah, ship? Yeah, we can. We can talk about how they suck. The Christmas lights on the bottom, and they are. It's a string of white lights. 
like four strings of white lights on the bottom of the ship. Oh my god! Oh it, yeah, it looks awful. It looks so shitty, and it sucks so bad because the ships look fantastic. I don't understand why they would do that though. Like they just I, like totally just pulled me out of the experience. I mean, am I missing something? Is it something that like am I supposed to think it's something the crew did to the outside of the ship to like spice it up and put? Their no, own I don't think so. I, su- I think it's supposed to be like landing strip. So, I don't know something like that. I mean the. The the one room in on the ship that I think also looks pretty stupid is the Christmas light room. It's like the yeah. mother mm, the mother, the mother main room. computer. Yeah, um, it's just a series of blinking lights, and you're just like, that's just a lot of unnecessary. Yeah, it, I mean, it looks like something out of an old like B movie from the fifties, like a ship. sci-fi yeah. where it's like in the future we're gonna have little blinky lights everywhere, <laughs> <laughs> and we won't know what they do either. But they're gonna. That's blink what technological a lot. progress is, dear. Blinky lights. <laughs> blinky lights. The more blinky lights there are, the more computing power it has. Because that makes sense somehow. Yeah. Anyway, so last of Marxism is just that point about. Um, the people literally turning into the aliens and the since the aliens are the commodities then the people are turning into commodities and that's a that's a major thing in marxism called reification that frederick engels came up with which means the workers turn into the things i don't know so. if i i don't know if we've skipped it already i don't know if we passed it but there was a a shot of the landscape on this alien planet that's like very craggy rocks and stuff like that that was our hint our movie still hint uh, for this episode, and only one person got it, and it was Matt Garrison on Facebook. So congratulations to Mr. Matt Garrison. He he uh, want you to plug anything? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, the yeah, the it's it's a pretty obscure obscure shot, obviously, because that's kind of the point of the game. Um, but it's. I I gave it to him. I gave it to him even though he did say alien or aliens. He kind of got two in there, but I was like, ah, you, you got it. And since he's the only one, <laughs> I figured I'd give it to him. Um, Speaking of aliens, I watched some of that last night. After oh, did you, you? After you wussed out and went to bed. I'm sorry, I passed out. I got a job. You know, <laughs> got to get Whatever. up to work and shit like that. You know, making making money. Yeah, making money. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I I watched some of Aliens last night. Um, it's been a long time since I did. You I've, not finish it? No, I fell asleep too. <laughs> well, who's the wuss? But but I watched some of it, and and I really do. I I love the sequels to this movie too. All of them? Um, uh, two and three. I like. I like three a lot more than most people. Um, I don't hate four either. Like I don't think there's. I don't a, even remember four. The, what? I, what's four? What happens in four? Four is where Ellen Ripley is cloned with some of the alien stuff still. And it's got the famous <gasps> basketball scene that's kind of dumb, where she's like really good at basketball. <laughs> oh, I vaguely remember and this. Ron Perlman's in it, and. Winona Ryder's in it. Yeah, no, I if I I'm sure I saw it it's at written, some point written by but, Joss Whedon. but wasn't that's wow. Yeah. And it's not good? I mean, it's it's kind of Joss Whedon-y. <laughs> Maybe I need to go back and watch it then. Maybe I'll find some I don't know. Some I, love I don't know that his his style doesn't really work for for like the mood yeah. of I don't know. It's it's kind of a weird movie, but I don't hate it. It's kind of mm. dumb, but I don't hate it. It's fun. Um, Alien Three, I think, gets a lot of shit and it, it, that it doesn't deserve. I think yeah, Alien it does 3, get a lot of Alien Three's got a really great sense of like claustrophobia mm-hmm. yeah. um, that k- 
kind of brings it back well, to the first movie in a really interesting and way. And all the sexual tension coming back and stuff too. Yeah. Like all that kind of yeah. imagery coming back. Well, Alien so. 3 takes it and, you know, where James Cameron took it and made it into an action movie, Alien 3 kind of brings it back and makes it a horror movie mm-hmm. again, which I appreciated. Um, but I think 2 is fun. I love the characters in 2. I, I, love, the, I love the robot in 2. Um, the android. Oh yeah, what's his dick? Yeah, what's his dick? <laughs> yes, I know his dick. <laughs> yeah, I think he's great. I, when I was a kid, I that image of him doing the knife thing, right? Where he like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It and who's he do it to? Is it Lance Henriksen who he does it to? Um, uh, I yeah, I think so. God, it like it has been so. It has been probably seriously. Uh, I want to say like fifteen years since I've seen Aliens. Wow. It's been that long. That's a really long. Time. I sh- I should have. I probably should have watched it before watching this again. Anyways, that knife scene where he's doing like the stabby thing in between the fingers really fast. That was one of those things as like a kid that I'd be like, I'm gonna do that, and then I'd you know get a butter knife or something and and try and do it on the kitchen counter till my mom would yell at me or I'd hurt my finger with a butter <laughs> knife. <laughs> oh, you were that. You, you were that kind of dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I see. That special kind of dumb. This uh, all the the murky like POV footage from the Nostromo's crews, the helmet visors, like them walking around that stuff. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all of that was filmed by Ridley Scott himself walking around with a consumer grade camcorder, like a handy really, cam. like a V. Probably. Well, it was what was it? Uh, Seventy nine. So. I don't know what kind of camcorder it would have been. Maybe beta, maybe a beta camcorder. Man. And he just walked around the set with that and some of the actors and yeah. You know, it's funny because uh, the last movie in the fly, this happened too. Um, And, and then in this movie, we've got it going on again where it's like these early uses of handheld cameras and horror movies. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, now I remember how you do this and don't suck. You know, where where like they actually kind of, kind of a burn, they actually take time to frame the shots. Um, you know, think about about doing anything with any sort of resemblance to, you know, that vaguely alludes to cinematography, dare I say, while still using a handheld camera. I mean, today it's just like handheld cameras and in horror movies, it's just it's the cheap thing to do and it takes away all the effort of having to frame shots and stuff. So, I mean, well, I mean the, the, the handheld stuff, first of all, not just the, like the little helmet cam, Mm -hmm. not just that was shot by Ridley Scott. All of the handheld stuff was shot by Ridley Scott himself. He took the camera from his cinematographer and said, I'm doing this myself. Because there are some scenes, there are some other scenes where, um, where it's not supposed to be like a helmet cam or something. And, and it's just, the, like the shot we have right now, but it's done with a handheld camera, um, and it and it provides a sense of tension. That oh, sort yeah, of absolutely. that sort of. I uh, mean, there's there's a way to do handheld. There's a me- I mean, and in this movie especially, there's a methodology mm-hmm. to how he does it. And the first time we really see the handheld stuff is when they're in the caves and the caverns and stuff like that on this planet, like walking through in an unknown area, um, a place they've never been before, and it creates a kind of tension because like you said, like there's, 
th- there's a reason for it. Yeah. Uh, and then once we start seeing, because like before on the ship, I mean, I think that the opening sequence is the best example of this. The camera, the way it floats around the ship on the steady cam or on mm-hmm. a track, I think it's on a steady cam. The way it floats around the ship at the beginning, it's very still, very serene, very quiet. Uh, and then all of the shots that you see until the alien appears on the ship uh, are tripod shots mm-hmm. or static shots, you know, very smooth pans, very smooth trucking and dolly motions, uh, except, of course, when they're on the alien planet. Once that camera style, once the handheld camera work makes it onto the Nostromo, that's when the alien is there. That's when the Nostromo is now a place that is to be feared like the alien planet, you know? That makes sense. So, and that's that's the methodology behind, you know, how how Scott is using the handheld stuff. Um, but anyways, though, my, my whole point is just that uh, there is a way, there is a time and place, I believe, for handheld shots in movies. And I also think that back in the beginning of the handheld era, when we had those first, you know, when Blair Witch came out and then um, a few of the movies that followed that, I think they're, they're I'll, I'll even say the first paranormal activity. Even the first paranormal activity, like there was a time where it was still this experimental thing we were doing. We were still playing with it and we were learning how to use it. And it was kind of cool because it was new and now it's not anymore. And now whenever I see a handheld horror, I just go, oh, so we decided not to do any cinematography Look at this right here. Like these shots right here, the shots of like the camcorder stuff, does it not like kind of bring to mind found footage? It does. Absolutely. That's what I'm talking about. Is it's is it does, but it's used appropriately. Right. Whereas yeah. today it's just um it's just devolved into into a a a way to not have to put any effort into your film. I, I kind of agree with that. I think that more often than not these days when handheld is used, it's uh you know, directors and, and maybe cinematographers uh under the direction of, you know, the director. Um playing kind of fast and loose with the photography so that they can create kind of a, a fleeting or false sense of tension that doesn't have any of the themes or the writing to back it up or the mm-hmm. atmosphere. Right. Um, so I think that you get, you, you've, we've gotten the blowback from what, what people have come to call shaky cam, mm-hmm. you know, shaky cam type yep. camera work. Um, which I don't think is invalid at all. I think it's, I mean, it, it, isn't, it is, of course, valid in, in certain cases. Um, but I think in this movie, this movie is a good example of how it's used really well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like all this stuff. Like and this stuff right here is not, this isn't for. even helmet cam, but this is handheld stuff. And look at that horizontal lens flare. J.J. Abrams gets such shit for his horizontal lens flares. I think that Ridley Scott really maybe needs to get taken to task for maybe being the one who pro- pro- proliferated who started it yeah maybe i don't have a problem with the lens flares i mean let's be fair jj abrams does kind of go overboard Whatever. speaking of which we're we're recording this like as maybe maybe as the new star wars the force awakens trailer is playing on tv during monday night football are you are you going to be able to handle yourself till we, we finish the podcast i mean we might have to just i'm just going to let you 
this is going to turn into a trailer reaction yeah but then, then you're gonna come back and you're gonna be crying and it's gonna be this whole this, mess <laughs> what am i gonna do come back and be like i don't know why but i suddenly feel like it's gonna suck i'm so sad <laughs> i was thinking just crying tears of joy oh, because tears you of saw joy. luke skywalker like, i saw luke skywalker i hope they show luke uh, may, or do i i don't know we're on a completely different let's topic. talk about alien again <laughs> okay <laughs> you mean star beast star beast so um oh so by the way i wanted to mention um the the ship that they're in right now again when when i uh get into all the psychoanalysis stuff uh some critics some theorists say that that ship is supposed to look like the legs of a woman spreading open and up skyward and that they enter through the center which is the vagina yeah, i'm gonna i'm gonna and call now, it a, i'm gonna call it a stretch now we are exploring the ship which looks organic inside right and then, and also they say this is a giant penis here that we're getting the shot of a gigantic, this, uh, this is it thing. A, is it a weapon coming. or a telescope? It's like a weapon or a telescope. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's phallic. Right. But it's a giant. I mean, it's a giant cock. And it's too big even for the whole shot. You know, H.R. Giger, we haven't even mentioned Giger yet, but H.R. Giger got in trouble because his- Of pr- all the penises well, in his, this? Well, his preliminary sketches for this were so like sexually overt, they were like, we can't make this movie. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> there are too many penises here. Um- Anyway, so, and then later, if you remember how this scene goes as they explore this ship, they're, the one guy is going to find the eggs, right? And so, so the theorists I'm talking about, they talk about these people, these explorers as sperm, okay? So they enter through the vagina <laughs> and then they explore the ship. I and wonder then if, I wonder if our comes, listeners can hear me rolling my eyes. He comes in contact with the egg and when the sperm comes in contact with the egg... What happens? What happens after that? He get impregnated. Yep, he gets impregnated by the alien. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> Ron Cobb's ex- explanation for what happened to the space jockey. What we're looking at now is a space jockey. Uh, some might call it the engineer. We get a better look at what the engineer actually is in Prometheus. Uh, it's kind of a humanoid giant person who is like from a super highly advanced, uh, te- you know, technologically advanced uh, civilization. Uh, but Ron Cobb's explanation of what happened to the space jockey uh, and the space jockeys in general and this space jockey, he says at some point a cataclysm caused the extermination of the adults in the race, leaving no one to tend and nurture the young. But in a dark lower chamber of the breeding temple, a large number of eggs lies dormant, waiting to see some, waiting to sense something warm. Years later, the space jockey race comes to this planetoid. The jockeys are on a mission of exploration and archaeology, and they are fascinated by this marvelous temple and unknown culture. One of them finds the egg chamber and gets face hugged. He's rescued, but no one knows what's happened. They take him back to their ship and continue their exploration of the planet's surface. When the chestburst erupts from the jockey it goes on a killing rampage until it it is shot and killed the alien dies but immediately decomposes and its acid eats through the hull of the jockey ship leaving them stranded on the planet and that's what this ship is that they're inside right now um the jockeys radio out a message that there is a dangerous parasite on the planet that nothing can be done to save them in time and that no one should attempt a rescue then the jockeys slowly starve to death and then that message ends up with our crew right here pretty cool that he set up all this backstory for us yeah that's what he explains is is what likely happened to the space jockeys i mean and and i think it's fun how we we even though 
all good authors should know their backstory, even if they don't have to tell it to you. Right. And this is a case of such space in this in this movie. There's so much space in these in these shots. Well, I mean, Um, it's it's a it's it's a sense of scale that I think um, I think this movie understands its sense of scale, and I think it gets its sense of scale from probably Star Wars, which I think has an amazing sense of scale. Um. And it's something that I always felt was lacking in, for example, Star Trek. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. When I was a kid and I would watch Star Trek, I never... You're talking uh, Next Generation. Next Generation, sometimes original series. Um, I never got a really good feel for how big the Enterprise was exactly. Mm. And then I heard somewhere that the Enterprise is home to thousands of people. And my brain just couldn't figure it out. I was just like, it, so it's that big, like it's massive. Well, like that's it's because really, all the, really all the shots are in these close confined quarters. You yeah. Know? It's, they're it's shot for TV. Right? Yeah. They're in these little bitty hallways and they're smushing past each other. And, and, then, and then you see like, and, and it's not like, I don't think it's that star Wars necessarily does things that differently. And I mean, you do get these nice wide shots of like the docking bays and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but the opening shot of star Wars is, is like a statement. Like it's a, it's a great statement on the scale that they've kind of managed to invoke in the movie with that great shot of the star destroyer flying over the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the greatest shots in all of the movies ever. And this movie copies that too. Like there are there are those kind of shots throughout this movie where you know the ship flies over the camera and, and it you're looks just like, fantastic. You're like, that looks fucking big. Except it's huge. for the Christmas lights. Except for the Christmas lights. Well, man, what were you thinking, bro? Mm. Mm. All right, take down the Christmas lights. But yeah, that's another just another great thing about this movie is just the sense of scale. Yeah, um, which is not an easy thing to get across. So, I think it deserves props for that. Um, you know, and now we've got Kane played by John Hurt making a dumb decision, right, on the alien mm-hmm. planet. Yeah. Something, something that this movie shares with, with Prometheus. Prometheus. That's right. Characters yeah. making dumb decisions, but the difference here's the difference. The difference being that these guys, we get, we feel, are miners. They're blue collar workers. They're not necessarily the most intelligent. They are. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're in space, so right. obviously... They're not they, scientists. They're not scientists, where we don't get the feeling that they're scientists. I think that they are scientists in some capacity. No, some of them. They're they're with the science division of mm-hmm. the Wayland yutani Corporation. But mostly they're miners. Uh, but the Prometheus crew is set up from the beginning as a bunch of scientists that are ostensibly prepared for their encounters, mm-hmm. but they get on the planet and do stuff like, <laughs> the air is totally breathable. We better take off our helmets. <laughs> it's like, but, but, but why would you do that? <laughs> they do a lot of dumb things in that movie. They do. <laughs> also, the movie's just dumb. Yes, yes, it is. I'm, that's I'm my not a fan that's of my whole critique of Prometheus. Someone I Actually, forgot who it was. Not. I forgot who it was. Someone on Facebook asked if we were going to talk about Prometheus, and yes, we are a little bit. Okay, yeah. Here's our talk about Prometheus. We didn't really like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. A, it's not a good movie. <laughs> Okay. It's a very expensive movie. It's a very movie. expensive movie. And it's, it's pretty. I it's mean, very pretty. I think it's super pretty. I think it's very well shot. Um, I think it, I think if you turn it off, turn off the sound and just and watch just it. And just don't listen to the dialogue. If there, was or, a, if there was a version with just the score and the visuals <laughs> and everything else. And we else, don't have to worry about stressing over the script or anything. Right. Then I think it makes Being a... Being concerned f- with plot. Yes. It makes a fine art installation somewhere. <laughs> 
And it, yeah, I mean, it's been a minute. I saw it when it first came out, and I haven't seen it since then. But basically, like my opinion at the end of watching it was, well, that didn't do what I wanted. We didn't really talk about the space jockey prop, though. It's an amazing prop. Oh yeah, it's incredible. It's so big. It is so. You big. You know, they weren't going to let them use it. At the, you know, to begin with, they weren't going to let them have the space jockey prop. But um, but Ron Cobb actually convinced. The, the executive producers, the studio, to let them build this prop and spend the money on it because it was it was going to be their quote unquote Cecil B. DeMille shot, right? What's that mean? He's a he's an old like golden age Hollywood director who uh, was famous for his spectacle. Okay. So his Cecil B. DeMille shot, the the, the thing that they're really talking about is is according to Ron Cobb, showing the audience that this isn't uh, just a B movie. Mm. Like yeah. like it would have been had it been called Star Beast. Right. I think it's really weird. Okay, everyone knows that we're coming. I, I love this right here, by the way. I love how the face hugger ate through that thick glass, and we see how thick the glass is. Yeah. It's pretty intense. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, ma- I imagine that's something that they probably picked up from NASA. I'm sure that the question was asked, how thick is the glass on those helmets, that your space helmets? And the answer is really thick. Really damn thick. <laughs> Imagine that. It's supposed to keep your head away from outer space. So <laughs> it's got to be pretty thick. God, I love the, the face hugger prop. Jesus, look at that thing. It's just bones and flesh and... Uh, mm, so fantastic. Something out of a Cronenberg movie. Yeah, yeah, it is. There are a couple moments in this. As a whole, though, you aren't a fan of the alien costume. Are I you? don't like the xenomorph. I know that's blasphemy. I don't like the way the xenomorph looks. I know that like it, it was it was one of it was one of Ridley Scott's like things, like one of his pet peeve. Maybe not a pet peeve, but you know, one of his really big points that he was focusing on when he made this movie is that he wanted the alien shot from close up, so that you couldn't, so that the audience would never be able to tell that it's a man in a suit. That they could think it's a puppet, they could think it's a robot, it's an animatronic, but it's not a guy in a rubber suit, which is what it was. Well, and it, but it wasn't just any guy. It was a six foot ten, twenty six year old Nigerian design student who they picked up yeah. in a bar. Yes, <laughs> he 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 beat Peter Mayhew, Chewbacca. Whoa! To the part. Whoa! <laughs> it's intense. Uh, and this is the only thing that guy ever did. And then he went back to Nigeria and died of sickle cell anemia in like ninety two. That sucks. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's a huge guy in a suit, but it is a guy in a suit. And there is more than one occasion in this movie where you really feel it. And I just can't like those moments really ruin it mm. for me. The worst one for me is when we see it outside the ship, the oh, escape so pod, and it like terrible. bounces up against the it side looks of the ship. So shitty. Yeah, that one's <laughs> that one's really bad. And you go, oh, maybe this should have been called Starbeast. I don't know. There's a maybe it should have been called Starbeast, right? Like, like I think at the end of the day, when you see the alien full on, like. Not in a, in, a, in an extreme close up. You're like, well, that's a guy in a rubber suit with a big ass head prop. Penis on. head. A big penis head prop. <laughs> like the design is fine. Like it's black and bony, and it's got ribs, and you know you can see its vertebrae and stuff like that. Like that's that's cool, but it still looks like a dude in a rubber suit. I'm I'm sorry. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get crucified online for this. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that's uh, fine. But Whatever. it does. I th- I think that the 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 face hugger and the chest burster are far more interesting designs for creatures. 
Well, I mean, it's cool. I didn't like the final fly costume. Well, not the final, final fly costume, but the fly costume before the final fly costume. And you don't like the xenomorph, so, okay. Yeah, that's true. I mean, well, the fly costume before the final, before the final Brundle fly yeah. was really just him in like heavy makeup and prosthetics and like a hunchback of notre dame suit which i just was not but but when he finally transforms into brundlefly the ostensible xenomorph of the Mm -hmm. fly film no that's fantastic it it doesn't even look humanoid like it's not humanoid it's like got these weird bending like weird yeah no it's great limbs that bend in weird places so basically what's happening here is what happened to the space jockeys yes exactly yes but except that it doesn't it doesn't eat through their whole hole and kill them. No, it doesn't. I mean, this this very well could have gone the way of The Thing, which I think takes a lot of inspiration from this movie. Mm. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of weird how we've worked backwards a little bit this month. Not entirely. We've, we did The Thing, which was made, which was released in 82, uh, which has a lot of influences, this movie included. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that it's got some some Empire Strikes Back influences. Uh, and, yeah, I could say that. In no small part because I think some of the special effects crew was working on the Empire oh, Strikes real? Back simultaneously. Yeah. Um, or was it simultaneously? Maybe simultaneously. Um, and then we jumped ahead to The Fly, which was 86, which I think has some, like uh, we said last week, it has some very distinctly Giger-esque mm. um, designs for yeah. the telepods. Mm-hmm. Even though Cronenberg swears that it's his Ducati <laughs> motorcycle that inspired the the design of the the, the the telepods, I think that they look very, very Giger-esque to me. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so now we're kind of back at at maybe what is... I mean, I, I think that obviously Star Wars and 2001 are responsible for the aesthetics of this film. But I think in in a lot of ways, this movie is just as seminal a film as Star Wars in 2001. Oh my God, yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, just like... If if for okay. nothing else than Giger's designs, because well, yes. I mean that that has that has ta- I mean that has gone. It has taken over sci-fi. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I mean, you basic like basically the way this sci-fi looks is how sci-fi looks unless we do something different. Like like this is generally the basis for sci-fi. You can even see this influence in like the X Files movies and yeah. stuff. You know, this um, is the standard. It is. It's yeah. the standard now. Um and. And the the alien itself is, you know, regardless of whether or not you like it, um, that the xenomorph design, I don't think we had that kind of an alien yet. I don't think that we had had a creature that looked like an alien, uh, an alien that w- was that kind of an alien yet. You know, I mean, you've got your... Um, your round head, uh, big black eyes, yeah, right? The grays. You've got like yeah, is that what like, they're called? The grays. The grays. Yeah. yeah, you've got like the really lanky grays that we get from uh, uh oh, shit. What's it called? The the one with the music and um third, third oh, oh third encounter. Uh, yes, yeah. close encounter. Close encounter. Third. <laughs> yes, third encounter. Third encounter. Third encounter of third, the close yeah. and, close and third encounter. <laughs> Yeah, Close Encounters of a Third Kind. If you um, just started whistling the song, I would have Yeah, been that was going to be my, my next step. Um, uh, yeah, so like you've got those kind of like they're really tall and lanky, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we, but basically like it's all variations on the grays, which was something I guess we came up with in when? The 50s or 40s or something like that? But this movie 
gave us a new alien, an alien that is is kind of uh, kind of like like a cockroach sort of yeah it's got like like a hard shell of like a beetle or something around all of it this exoskeleton that's really weird the yeah. way like it its limbs bend in funny ways it's and got stuff. like a, a sh- what is it called a carapace or so like a shiny yeah. carapace mm-hmm. yeah yeah especially its head it, yes and and i think that that style kind of became one of the types of aliens that we have now and when and when we picture an alien when someone says alien um and they're you know telling a story about aliens or whatever we've got a few variations that we generally go to and this is one of them now and i don't think it existed before it created a type of alien yeah i mean the 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 acidic blood i think is an interesting if a little bit b like at this point it's kind of a b-movie-esque kind of thing I feel Mm. but the acid blood is an interesting uh, way that they got out of kind of a a story corner so to speak Mm. Um, Ron Cobb came up with the idea because Dan O'Bannon the screenwriter on this uh, he couldn't find a reason why the crew wouldn't just shoot the thing with a gun true like they want to chase this thing around and they're, they're, they're trying to kill it or capture it or something but you know why don't they just shoot it yeah and Ron Cobb was like, well, give it acidic blood. So if they shoot it, then it's going to bleed out and burn through the hole of the ship. They're like, great idea. Good. Let's <laughs> we'll do go that. with that. We'll just flamethrower the shit out of it. Which kind, I think, uh, the thing picked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's that's their, their weapon of choice in this movie is a flamethrower mm-hmm. uh, to keep the thing from bleeding out and to try to just burn it up. Well, and thematically... Um not thematically, but uh, when look at him drinking that milk, you robot son of a bitch! You robot son of a bitch! Um, the way the way that tension builds in this movie by the end of the movie, it's it's hot. Like the ship is hot. It's sweltering. Oh, yeah. oh, you know, they're, they're so sweaty. Yeah, they're super sweaty. They've got different clothes on. Like she's got her hair up. Um, the the way that the ship feels by the end of the movie, it's like someone has just turned up the temperature on the film, and those flamethrowers really help with that. I just realized, I didn't mention this at the beginning of the show, but we're watching the theatrical cut of this movie, so if you're watching the director's cut, this is not going to sink for you, and I know we're like, I don't know. 40 minutes in. <laughs> so I apologize. I'm going to, I'm going to put up a post. I'm going to put up a note like with the episode <laughs> that it's for the theatrical cut, not the director's cut. Um, I, I per- personally prefer the theatrical cut uh, cause it's shorter. <laughs> nah, it's, I don't know. You know what? It may not be shorter actually. Um, so random that just, things. That just popped into my head and I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> so Ash, Robo Ash here. Yes. Uh, played by Bilbo. <laughs> <laughs> um, Show some respect. Played by Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, <laughs> time Bandits. Come on. No, that's that was a good one. By the time he made this movie, he was already 46 and he had been in 20 movies already. Yeah, like a boss. Like a boss. <laughs> now he's played, he's 84 and he's been in over 100 roles. <laughs> yeah, that's still nothing compared to Christopher Lee. Oh, how much is Christopher Lee doing? Oh, Jesus. Christopher, before he died? Oh, Christopher Lee. I mean, he basically worked until the day he died, which was just earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Rest yeah, in peace. Yeah, I remember. Um, I don't know, like well over 200. It's crazy town. Pretty sure. Well over 200 movies. 
Impressive. And just things. I think he did like BBC stuff, like Gorman Gast and shit. Like a boss. <laughs> like, a, like a boss. Uh, so, uh... I, w- I do want to know though. Like I was talking about the scale of this movie and talking about the Star Wars shot, the the uh, um, Star Destroyer shot that they mm-hmm. kind of reuse in this movie. Did that shot exist before Star Wars? Did the Star Wars shot exist before Star Wars? Which is the Be- Star Wars shot? The opening shot of Star Wars right after the title crawl. The the the, the you know the Rebel blockade runner. Going over Zooming the camera. past the camera and then the, the Star Destroyer following it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know my old sci-fi well enough to be able to tell you if it existed or not before. I, I, I mean, wouldn't be surprised if, if somebody had, did it before you know, some and toys and Lucas stuff from. and they were floating their toys on little strings over the top of the camera. Yeah. I'm sure I mean, that, that's basically how Star Wars was made. Right, except it looks good. Like... And by the way, can we just take a moment to talk about that fact? The fact that... We're talking about Star Wars more than we're talking about aliens. No, we're not. Um, The ship, the way the ship... And that if we are, it's only because of you and your trailer obsession right now. I'm sorry. It's playing right now. I can feel it. Um, The the miniatures, right? They are never going to look dated. It's never going to happen. Right. Oh, we're, no, definitely We're going to go forever like you, into the future and go back to this movie. And we'll be able to tell yeah. that it was made in, you know, the oh, late 70s, that. early 80s. Um, but it's never going to look dated. Just like this seafood creation that we're seeing here. That It was made using fresh shellfish. It kind of looks delicious. Four oysters, you would say that, and a sheep kidney. Okay, that part, well, I mean, sure, whatever. Can't knock it if I haven't tried it. I mean, that's a vomit cocktail right there. <laughs> that's that's all that's for. Fresh I, I do want to say, I shellfish are fantastic. As much as I, it's not that I dislike, dislike the xenomorph design. I just don't think it's amazing. I, I don't think it's all that special. But I do love the chest burster and the face hugger because they're non-humanoid. That's what I really appreciate because I love non-humanoid alien creature designs. And I think the, the face hugger alone is one of the best in all, in all movies oh, yeah. of, of all time. Well, and it, and again, I think it created a type of alien. It created a, this thing that we now, you know, is now a part of God, any kind of sci-fi thing where you're blowing up aliens at some point in the movie or the video game, there's always going to be the little fuckers, right? There's yeah. always going to be some... You can even play Halo and stuff, and you're eventually going to get to some part of the game where you've got to kill a bunch of little guys that are running at you. And I mean, the face huggers, right? It right. came from the face huggers, where the little ones are about as terrifying as the big ones, but for different reason. So the... So, I mean, basically, I I say that to say that I don't really care for the xenomorph design. I do think the fact that, I don't know that that's something that comes through in this movie, but in later movies, it's definitely the case. Whatever kind of creature the face hugger attaches itself to and and impregnates, Mm. the alien that is then bursts forth from the chest of that creature will take on properties of that creature. So like in Alien 3... There's a dog mm-hmm. alien, or there was. I think it may have been cut out of the movie, but there's a there's a dog alien because a xenomorph face hugs or a face hugger face hugs a dog, and it comes out and it's like a four legged you know 
dog alien. So, like, because it takes on the form of whatever it is that it hatches out of. Then you have to kind of give it some, you know. It's a good excuse for. For the humanoid. For the, yes. Shape of the xenomorph. I guess. In this movie. If you have to have an excuse, I think that's as good as any. Christmas lights. It takes them forever to get off this fucking planet. And I always forget that. Like, they always, like, this scene right here where they take off, I'm like, oh, they're still here? Oh, that's right. They're still hanging around. My goodness. It's like the opening of the second Wheel of Time book, just oh. hanging out at the castle for oh 400 goodness. pages. Are we, are we both trying to get crucified by <laughs> the internet today? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so the milky stuff that Ash was drinking, uh-huh, yes. I guess it was milk. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's obviously intentional that he's drinking milk because later when he gets decapitated and destroyed, there's this super gross, milky, white mm-hmm. substance that comes out of his body and gets all over the place. And, you know, my psycho psychoanalyst friends are going to tell you uh, that scene where there's the confrontation between Ash and Ripley. She's got a bloody nose and he's got milky, dare I oh say, semen. God, really? <laughs> so you've got vaginal and... Penile imagery, phallic imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you must. Oh, I must. I mean, if 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 I had thought of it, I would have been like, yes. And did you know that the milky stuff is representative of semen? In yeah, common? and and his explosion of semen all over so the proud. room <laughs> is is uh, I don't know. I read something. It was like him him trying to assert his phallic dominance over the the. Uh, second wave feminism represented by w- Listen, Ripley. That's a myth. It doesn't explode everywhere. <laughs> well, it does in this movie. He's covered in it by let, the let end. Me, let me just debunk myths all over the place about men and their penises and their weird <laughs> hanging organs. Look at that shot right there. Look at this shot of just like his head in frame when Parker comes into frame. That's a that's like an indie movie shot right there. Like a modern, contemporary movie Right, where it's like kind of out of shot. frame. Yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of soft focus, a little mm, out of frame. A little out of frame, but intentionally out of frame. Right. Uh, do you know why they what call What is he wearing? It looks like a corset. It looks like he's half undressed from a cosplay. <laughs> um, do you know why they call the, the computer Mother? I have I have my reasons, but no, not metaphorically. <laughs> I'll tell you why Freud would say Jesus Christ. <laughs> but you go ahead and tell me what you're. You're insufferable say. now. You need to drop out of this class that you're in because it's ruining you. <laughs> they call the the computer mother because it's it's the actual name of the computer is M U dash T H dash U R mother. Or try to pronounce it M U T H U R, mother, M- mother. Now you go ahead and keep, M- you keep trying to pronounce it, and I'll just laugh at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got this eating scene right here, and this this is another thing that I I, I really kind of like about movies about the future, but. I think that movies are always like movies about the future are always in some way, of course, a product of the time that they're made in. Mm. And I think the thing that as as ahead of its time as this movie was in like production design and aesthetics and all that kind of stuff, uh, and even in like gender politics and mm. the things that yeah. it talks about, I do think that 
the smoking, as weird as it sounds, like them just casually smoking mm-hmm. on this spacecraft to me is just like, I don't buy it. I don't believe that you get on a spacecraft and anyone allows a cigarette on that thing. It's like no fire inside no. the spaceship. <laughs> we are guys, going to explode. You idiots. Oh my God. This is one of the best scenes in all horror movie history. And here's where he made his mistake. Here's the rule of long journeys. Never, ever talk about the first thing you're going to do when you get home, which is what he did right before this happened, because that will ensure that you will die before you get back. That's true. It's true. True fact. And we're about to get some. Oh God! Yes, it's just. It's just. I love the initial burst, like that one right there, where it's just like the initial like spurt, and and how they all kind of like just freeze for a second, looking at what's just happened, and then of course you know we're gonna have the penis erupt from his chest. We didn't. Thank you. Uh, We. We did, that reaction by Veronica Cartwright was real because they knew the, the, the blood was going to come out, but they didn't know it was going to explode everywhere. Oh, yeah. She didn't know it was going to get on her. Uh, and this isn't like multiple takes. Like they shot this scene in one take with four different cameras. Oh, my God. Just, just so they could capture it. And they're like, we're doing it once and that's it. And that's what they did. Wow. It's incredible. So the reactions are real. None of them had seen the, the, the chest burster like it. The, Effects people call them gags. They hadn't seen the the chestburster gag like work yet. Mm-hmm. So when it happens, they're all just like, "Holy fucking shit!" <laughs> well, it worked. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it made one of the greatest horror scenes in movie history. So and subsequently, one of the greatest parodies of said scene in Spaceballs when the chestburster pops out of John Hurt's chest. I think it's John Hurt. I think he makes a cameo in that movie just to do that, and then it sings. The Hello My Baby, Hello My Honey song and dances on the bar. <laughs> um, Has a little top hat. Can it's, I, it's can it's I amazing. crucify myself again? I mean, it, yeah, sure. I I don't know. Maybe it's a guy thing, but I never thought Spaceballs was all that fantastic. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, but the last time I thought it was fantastic, I was like 12. Okay. So I think that that might be. Okay. So it's like a little boy thing then. It could be. It could okay. be. But that's not to say that Mel Brooks is not a genius. Right, no, no. Who made Young Frankenstein. Yes, no, agreed. And Young Frankenstein's a fucking masterpiece. Agreed, so. agreed, agreed. Still with the space balls. I, you know, I, just from, I haven't watched it in a long time, but just from memory, I'm going to go ahead and side with you on that and be like, <laughs> yeah, like even from my, even with nostalgia goggles on, when I try to remember things about Spaceballs, I'm like, it's a little, yeah. It's, it's just a, it's me. You know, jam the whatever, and jam comes yeah. down the screen, and Michael Winslow yeah. and Pizza the Hut. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's enough of that. And the guy from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I gotta stop you there. Because now you're talking shit about Rick Moranis. I'm not. I'm not. I love him. I'm so sorry, Rick Moranis. Like, you, the, the internet's not going to crucify you. I'm going to crucify you. You don't talk shit about Rick Moranis, I my love friend. you, Rick Moranis. <laughs> He's not listening. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's probably a wonderful father. What does that have to do with anything? Because that's what he did. He quit movies so he could be a dad. Oh, okay. And he made a, a country album. <laughs> That's mm. kind. Of, that's kind of funny mm. in that ha huh, kind of way. Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, so Roger Dickens is the man, and they, the name of the man who designed and operated the facehugger uh, 
puppet mm-hmm. and the chestburster. He did both. Uh, and he originally wanted, imagine this, he originally wanted the chestburster to pull itself out of Kane's torso with like little hands. In a <laughs> like, like it busts through, and then it's got two little hands that like, like little T Rex hands, little maybe yeah, like little little skinny T Rex hands, and it goes and like pulls itself out. Uh-huh. Can you just imagine that? Oh, I can. Doesn't it look amazing? It looks pretty cute in your head. <laughs> so I just want to congratulate Roger Dickens for a great mental image <laughs> that we'll never actually get to see. But, um. During early development of the script, Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett ran into a writing impasse while trying to work out how the alien would get aboard the ship. And shoot, and this is going to feed into your, your theories, of course, uh, which is why I'm mentioning it. Shusett came up with the idea that, quote, the alien fucks one of them. Okay. Okay. <laughs> which was eventually developed into the facehugger concept, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. I mean, essentially what, it's, what it does. Face rape. Face rape, right, exactly. Uh, So this method of reproduction via uh, implantation was deliberately intended to invoke images of male rape and impregnation. So both writers were adamant that the face hugger victim be a man. Firstly, because they wanted to, A, avoid the horror cliche of women being depicted as the easy first target. And secondly, because they felt that making a female the casualty of a symbolic rape felt inappropriate, which I think is an is amazingly perceptive of a bunch of men, white, ostensibly, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, probably white men, writing this movie. Uh, oh, and thirdly, to make the male viewers feel more uncomfortable with this reversal of the genre conventions. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Dan O'Bannon kind of famously wrote the script to be gender neutral. He did not write any of the characters with any particular gender in mind. Uh, but as they developed it, of course, him and Ronald Shusett decided, of course, that the facehugger victim would be a man. Um, but... You know, eventually they they did come to the decision that Ellen Ripley, uh, or that Ripley was going to be a woman, Mm -hmm. played by a woman. So um, I think that subverting those tropes is a thing that this movie does really well, but still manages to play into a very famous horror trope of the final girl. Yeah, true. Because well, I mean, it kind of uh, did it create the final girl. Mm. What came before this that created the final girl? Well, Halloween. Halloween. I mean, a bunch of things, but Halloween. What year was Halloween? Seventy-eight. <laughs> oh, so shit. before this movie. Hold on, seventy-eight. You're oh. sure it was before this movie? That's all I'm asking. You. Uh, se- okay, I'm gonna say seventy-eight. Seventy-eight plus or minus one year. Mm-hmm. Seventy-eight plus but- or minus one year. Looking it up. Halloween. Anyways, um, seventy-eight, motherfucker. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> what? Nothing. Let, okay. me go, let me go put a star sticker on your chart over. Hey, don't tell our listeners about my chart. No one needs to know that. Dustin feels proud today. Oh, my God. <laughs> proud is a purple sticker, and you know that. <laughs> okay. The, you... the screech of the newborn alien, the chestburster, was voiced by animal it's adorable. Imperson- it's adorable, and it was voiced by animal impersonator Percy Edwards. Uh, and I just want to mention that to say, thank God it, it wasn't the guy that does. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> what's his name? Oh, Frank. Oh, what's his name? Frank, Frank, fuck. What's his name? <laughs> You're going to lose your Frank Welker. Frank Welker. Sticker. That's his name. I'm not going to lose Frank Welker. I did it. <laughs> yeah. Just thank God it's not Frank Welker. Cause we've seen what he can do. He's been on the popcorn poops 
once before, at least once before, um, on Anaconda, where he where he played a snake. <laughs> so we've met the best character in the movie just now. Who's the best character? Uh, really? Oh, Jonesy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, second best. Ripley, then Jonesy, of course. Okay, that's fair. I mean, this. I movie, guess Jones is, Jones is an asshole. He is kind of a jerk. He's an asshole cat for he is. sure. But that doesn't mean we don't love him. Mm, well, <laughs> all cons- cats are assholes. Cons- what do you consider- expect? Considering we have two cats and 50% of those two cats <laughs> are 100% asshole. Do you see how that math works out? Sort of. 50% of the two cats is yeah, 100%. Yeah, got it. It means one of the cats is a fucking asshole. <laughs> it's true. But the other one's still, really fluffy. But we still love her. <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean, Jonesy is totally a jerk because after Ripley goes to so much effort to rescue Jonesy, Jonesy's like totally being a dick when they're on this escape ship. You know, the the sequence that we're we're looking at here, uh, maybe not this shot, but there are some shots in in the sequence uh, and the one preceding it. Once the alien is on board the ship, that's when the handheld shots inside the Nostromo start. Yeah. Um, and it's because the ship is no longer safe. It's it's to build that tension again, like you like you mentioned earlier. Um, oh, I love he finds this, the shedded skin here. Though I do have to say, for the size of the alien that um, that we see in the next, because we can presume that the alien just shedded his skin right there, and that's why Jonesy freaked out and ran off, yes. right? Okay, and he's going to walk to, the, and look how little the skin is. It's like the face hugger shredded skin. And then he's going to walk to the next room, and there's going to be a human-sized alien I mean, we don't know that it's human-sized. It might grow more from this point, because in this scene, it's shot in all close-ups. Okay, well. So it might actually get bigger yet. Uh, but I do think that the the rate at which the, the xenomorph grows is... I, I hesitate to say unrealistic, because <laughs> in real life, a xenomorph grows at this rate, <laughs> at this particular... But- but you want your you want your physics and your biology and all that science science stuff to fast, doesn't to it? Science out correctly. Yeah. Oh yes, the most logical room in the ship. We've got the torture chamber. Yeah, this is something out of like a fucking Hellraiser movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This this the is the room of water and chains. This is yeah, this that's what I affect, affectionately call this room is the the water and chains room <laughs> that serves what Function <laughs> exactly. Um, I told you it's the torture chamber. Like, the, like they built this room on the ship to be the room. They're like, okay, so this room is this the water and chains room. This is where you go when you will be killed by the alien. That, yes, mm-hmm. that jumps on board your vessel. When we inevitably are contacted by a hostile alien uh, creature, you're going to go to this room and be killed in here. Want to I set mean, the scene? To be fair, like we we say that we're you know we're we're making fun of this room, but it was a point of contention between Ridley Scott and the producers, because the producers were like us, and I I, I would I would say that I'm rarely I rarely, I rarely side, side with, with the, the producers, producers, but. They didn't understand why there would be water pouring out of the ceiling or <laughs> chains just dangling 
on a ship. Uh, I stretch it. Some kind of cooling process. Of, Ridley mm-hmm. Scott decided that he needed the movement. He needed the movement in the frame. He needed. I mean, and it is. It is totally evocative. Oh yeah. It is creepy as shit. It is. But, I don't want to die in here. But that's what happens when you have dripping water and dangling chains. It doesn't mean they make sense, <laughs> right? Whatever. I'm fine with it, really. And I agree with how terrified Jonesy is in this scene. Um, you know how they scared the cat to get the really scared shot? Like what when it freaks do? out earlier? That poor kitty's all wet. They they put a like a screen like a, a, a in front of the cat. And mm-hmm. on one side of the screen, they put a German shepherd. <gasps> and they started filming the cat and lifted the screen so that they're like, they were like face to face in an instant. And Jones just lost its shit. Yeah. Well, that's cat That's what happened. How do you train a cat anyway? Um, That's that's something I've never understood. Like, I get, like, being able to train a dog. That's so gross. Ah. So gross and weird and wet and always dripping. And and look at how how disinterested Jonesy is. He's just like, "Mm, whatever. I wouldn't call this it, like, unlike... Uh, two weeks ago, when we praised the performance of the dog, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't really call the Jones performance a great performance because <laughs> I can't really say that the cat was acting. I think they were just pissing it off and filming it. I think you're right, which is mostly true. I I, I would assume um, the best cat actor of all time, clearly, based on what is, I've heard, anyway, is uh, the cat in a talking cat. A talking cat, yeah. Starring Eric Roberts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he'll do anything, apparently. It's got an interrobang at the end of the I, title. It does. <laughs> an interrobang with like one too many punctuation marks, I think. I think it's got like yeah, two probably. question marks and an exclamation. I don't know. Uh, I, I could have sworn that you were going to say the best cat performance was in Hocus Pocus. Um, can I change my answer? <laughs> no. No, you can't. <laughs> Moving on. Um... <laughs> whose idea was it to bring the cat anyway i i do wonder about the cat on the ship i do wonder about that i mean it was obviously ripley's idea to bring the cat but i do yes, wonder she is, she, she is the most cat lady like of i don't know i could see veronica cartwright That's having true. 14 That's or true. 18 or 15 20, <laughs> Four, 14 or 28 <laughs> or she, <laughs> um 27 half um okay, it's, 14 teen. uh i think i think that that uh, the real question isn't who brought the cat, but why. <laughs> That's the real question. That, that is a good question. It's We can assume that someone brought it, and it doesn't matter who it is. Why did you bring the cat on your space <laughs> well, mission? Like, you know what, though? I'm going to back off of that because... It's um, like, who, who was it that we were... We were talking to a, to a, a friend recently, and they said that... When they were kids, they went to the beach and someone decided it'd be a good idea. No, that, was, that wasn't a friend. That was my grandfather. Oh, was it your grandfather? Yeah. He decided it'd be a good idea to take the cat to the beach. And guess what? The cat ran away because you put a cat in a car for five hours and let it out next to the ocean, next to the, you know, one of the biggest bodies of water oh on the planet. God. And it's going to freak the hell out and run away. The, the, the real ending to that story, you can't tell that story without the ending, though, which is that the cat then proceeded to cross mountains. The Catskills, is that, or and, not the Catskills, but the, no, the, the Adirondacks. Adirondacks. And, and came back home. They didn't go to the ocean. They went to a lake. But Whatever. but anyways, the cat the cat crossed mountains and showed up on the doorstep a month later. So what would Jonesy do? Like you take Jonesy on a space trip and 
You let well, it. Well, I don't a... think you let the cat out into space. So well, sometimes you can't help it. <laughs> Cats are small and nimble. I don't think that's how it works. But anyways, I'm sure that the cat is there for like uh, stress relief purposes. That's that oh, would be okay. my logical okay. reason. I just I've always wondered because I know at the end of the movie when she's preparing her like hypersleep pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, she puts Jones in the pod before mm-hmm. she gets in, and then the alien shows up inside the escape pod and all that kind of shit. Well, she puts him in one by himself and closes Are you it. Sure. In the in the when she first gets on the escape pod, she puts Jones inside one of the pods and, and closes, closes it. it? Oh, yes, okay. because that's why we don't have the stress in that scene anymore. Of oh God, what's going to happen to Jonesy when she opens the airlock? Oh, okay, all right. Because th- they put that, the cat in the pod. Okay. At, at I the, didn't realize that because, like, to me, imagining her hyper sleeping with a cat it's like really you're gonna hypersleep with a cat and breathe in recycled cat farts for 22 <laughs> months like is that what we're doing is that the choice we're making with what our I life? what I was really gonna say about that though was that um was was that like the cat the cat being in the pod though I feel like I don't know. I guess their technology is just just has to be good enough to be able to distinguish between human and cat because whatever chemicals they're spewing out to put someone into cryo sleep would be for a human sized person, and then to do that for a cat would I assume would be, kill the cat. I think it would be adorable if they had a cat sized. I that's really what I'm getting to is I want one of those. Just a round little pod that's mm-hmm. got a cat that's bed in it. That's just for cat. If I had a spaceship, I would have cat cryo sleep chambers. Oh my god! So we got uh, we got Dallas walking through the air ducts now, doing a little bit of a pre-John McClane air duct business, uh, which led me to go on a search on the on the intranet uh, that I, I ended up not having an answer for. But I, it made me wonder what was the first instance of like the air duct trope like traveling mm. through like walking through the air ducts because that i mean let's be real that shit don't work in real life climbing through air ducts yeah i've never tried it so i mean i haven't either but i, I can just imagine that they're not designed for bodies to go through so mm-hmm. why would a body kind of fit perfectly in there to crawl around i don't know it just doesn't seem doesn't seem like it would shake out that way i don't know but it is it i mean it absolutely is a trope it's a thing you see pop up time and time again in, not just in horror movies either oh no no no! just in just yeah, in all spy sorts movies of, yeah, spy movies and all sorts of media and everything like i just i just played through uh metal gear solid the first metal gear solid and i think in all of those games there is at least one part where you have to crawl through vents and shit right. like that um but how did that start I don't know. Because, you know, buildings didn't always have air ducts. Yeah. Obviously. Well, I guess whenever we got them, then we started thinking we should crawl through them in our media. <laughs> so. is, that, is that what it is? Is that our, is that like the latent primordial like cave person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trying to go back to the cave? Or is it Freudian in nature? Is that us trying to return to the womb? Probably. You know, the claustrophobic space. That Are is. you ready for some psychoanalysis? Yes, fucking go on. Okay. Psychoanalysis. Um, so basically, this is the part where we get to talk about sex and childhood trauma and stuff like that. And you have to remember that Freud was the daddy of psychoanalysis. So you keep that in mind when you're when you're talking about psychoanalysis. Right. Um, a lot of the ideas that I have that I pulled off the internet for, for this movie, though, come from a pretty controversial psychoanalysis named Melanie Klein or Klein. Klein. Anyway, so some of the stuff she talked about were was um like this movie being just chock full of mommy issues. So the ship looks like boobs, right? 
underneath the ship, <laughs> underneath the bottom of the ship, there are I boobs. Guess it, I guess it does. Okay, there are like round boob-like structures. All right. Um, and those boobs you are heard it, filled. You heard it here on Popcorn Poops first. The Nostromo has tits, ladies and gentlemen. And those boobs are filled with milk. And by milk, I mean the ore and minimal minerals that are going to feed consumers on Earth. Okay. Um, uh, okay. The ship is called Mother... That's the obvious one. Yes. It's also named after a Joseph Conrad book. Womb-like interior of the ship, cryogenic slumber birth. Uh, some psychoanalysts talk about greed coming from the infant desire for milk. So like when you're an infant. Oh, here comes the scare. Here comes the jump scare. You ready? Here it is. Oh, he's going to hug him. <laughs> that's And that's another one of those moments where I don't think the scare really works. I don't think it paid off. And you're just like, I think the jump scare functioned as it's supposed to because it's not hard to put a loud noise in the audience's ear and, you know, shock them for a second. But like as a really great release of tension, you've got the man in a rubber suit extending his arms out like, ah, gonna get ya. (laughs) Like he doesn't leap at Dallas. He just goes, ah, gonna get ya. It's, I mean, it is it's the equivalent of, we, we, I said this the other night when we were watching Insidious 3, which I don't recommend anyone do. No. I mean, really all the Insidious movies, you know, you could just I don't remember the other two being them. this, this like jump scare heavy. No, they weren't as bad about it. I don't Insidious think. Insidious 3 is nothing but like crazy over the, like over the top jump scares. Oh where yeah, the it was music just all, I mean, all it gets, jump scares. It, it, they are unreasonably loud. Like, there's no way you won't jump. That's the only way they work. Yeah, it's one of those movies where you keep turning up and down the volume as the tension builds. Because right. you're just like, like, oh, uh, God, I'm going to piss out, piss off my, piss out my neighbors. <laughs> <Piss> out. <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> I'm going to piss off my neighbor. Hey, neighbor, what you doing in my bladder there? It's <laughs> a little strange. <laughs> so you just got to keep, like, met, like, the whole time you watch the movie, you're babysitting the remote. Well, let me get the goldfish net and fish you out of the toilet there. <laughs> Are you still talking about that? We'll wash off in the sink. <laughs> okay, back to penises and boobs. Um, so as infants, we uh, we become greedy because of our desire for milk, and that capitalist greed in this movie is you know shown by the company doing what they do, and that's what makes life is expendable. Um, uh, thread of the phallus. Let's talk about the thread of the phallus. Sure, let's talk about that. So first, remember, Freud tells us daddy is the force that keeps you from sleeping with mommy, which is why you kill him. Makes sense. Um, and Klein's version talks about the penis contaminating the milk with dead babies, i.e. sperm. As you do. As you do, yeah. <laughs> Like okay. I said, kind of controversial uh, woman. Anyways, alien head looks like a penis. Face hugger impregnates you and stuffs long penis down your throat. As is tradition. As is tradition. Robo tries to kill Ripley by stuffing a porn magazine down her throat. Yes. I.e. penis. Yes. Um, and uh, and then there's the classic Freud fear of the, the face rape itself, where when the face hugger um, rapes you, it's a symbolic castration because the teethy vagina is eating up and destroying the intrusive phallus, rendering it impotent. I I know I'm making fun of you right mm-hmm. now and laughing at you, but I do I do want to make it abundantly clear that there is an undeniable psychosexual element to this movie. Oh God, un- yeah. Un- undeniable. I don't know if all of the specific symbolism and metaphors line up, but they're not necessarily supposed to. A metaphor is what an individual sees and not necessarily what the artist puts into it. 
not I mean that's that's just how I yeah, see it. Yeah, no. I, I agree. And and the thing is is that this movie does like you said even the writer uh O'Bannon is that right Dan O'Bannon yeah Dan O'Bannon um he he was gender neutral right like it wasn't supposed to be any gender and there's a definite subversion of gender roles in this in this movie oh yeah absolutely and not just subversion of gender roles but like the taking away of sexuality and like placing it on the opposite gender and things like that even hermaphroditic themes um, where the alien itself, right? V- think of the way the alien looks with its mouth, with the teeth yeah. inside the head. So it's like a gigantic penis that oozes semen. You know how it's kind of yeah. drippy sometimes. However, it has the vagina dentata thing going on. Yeah. So it's like a penis and a vagina. Yeah, it's it's weird. And like, I've never really understood. Maybe they explain it better in in Aliens, which again I haven't seen in like fifteen years, but how the aliens actually reproduce. Like, what is the sequence of events? Because you've got the whole face-hugger, chest-burster thing Mm -hmm. where it's clear that they're reproducing that way, but the face-hugger comes out of an egg. Now, Uh, where does the egg come from? That comes from a deleted scene in this movie. Okay. Um, the, The people are turned into the eggs. So the people are turned into eggs. Like there's a scene, there's a really famous deleted scene with Dallas and with Brett. Yeah, where, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. Where, where she tortures them. Yeah, she tortures them, but right. she goes down and like they're in the process of being turned into the eggs. Okay, but let's think about this. The xenomorph captures people to cocoon them and turn them into eggs, mm-hmm. which will then hatch Face huggers, mm-hmm, yeah, which then attach to people, mm-hmm. which then create chest bursters, which will then capture people to turn into like it feels like there's too many steps in there somehow in involving the, involving like a, a life form. Am I am I crazy in remembering in one of the later movies there's a giant queen alien in that the she, second one? Yep. So, where does that fit into this? System? Yeah, that's a good fucking question i don't know if they had like the reproductive abilities of the alien of the xenomorph worked out in the first movie mm, maybe, maybe it's, they did maybe it's the queen that lays the eggs and I, I don't know it just it just seems like humans or other life forms have to be involved at too many steps in the process yeah, yeah. like they have to be face hugged and then chest bursted but then they're also used to make the eggs that create the face huggers mm-hmm. in the first place like it just something doesn't feel right there I don't know. I mean, what do I know? I'm just a, a human that reproduces one way. <laughs> so it's true. You may, maybe the xenomorphs have options. <laughs> oh yeah. So this is the scene here, and just like in uh, in the thing, we've got a shot coming up now-ish, and we've got a bunch of naked ladies on the wall. And there's breakfast. Y- yes. There's okay. sausage and and eggs. Some sausage links. Uh, wait. Hey, are you are you trying to? psychoanalyze here a bit um yes because the sausage is delicious keep going no like, no mm. like penises okay closer <laughs> wait, a wait. do you want me to tell you about my okay, mother let's go back and try again we've got eggs and sausage yes Can it's you... very obvious like okay. it's a, the mother's egg and then the right. sausage it's, is the phallic yeah. image yeah yeah I, okay I, I, I yeah it. it's a I lot of it. i mean this movie's got a lot of that going on the the um 
the sort of like gender gender neutral stuff that's going on here. He's doing the face raping thing here, which is the I like the, how he does a little Kalima Shakti day on uh, Yafet Koto's chest. The the Freudian lack. He's raping her with a porn magazine because he doesn't he doesn't have a penis because he's a robot and doesn't have reproductive abilities. Right. Um. And also because he saw his mom without a penis when he was a kid or is that why like is that, that why yeah. is that why that was <laughs> i mean well that's what everything comes oh back my to. god decapitated and his head is off and we're just did, did he beat him with the magazine is that what he's beating him with uh no he's beating him with a loaf of cheese okay i don't know <laughs> i'm not some sure some other phallic thing uh, so, some phallic thing lots of sperm well, everywhere maybe it's, maybe it's a dairy thing maybe it's like a a dairy motif of what? cheeses and milk and thing i don't know uh, I, I do, oh goddamn robot! He doesn't say damn robot. He says goddamn goddamn robot. Yeah, let's be specific. Right. Um. So, yeah, that that's one thing that this movie does share with the thing from a couple of weeks ago is that it has two, uh, you know, it has the the pictures of the women hanging up on right. the wall and mm-hmm. stuff. But the thing doesn't have any women in. Right. No, that's the, cast the only women that we actually have in the film. That and the computer voice that Did he. Did you see that piece of spaghetti fall off of his arm? That was weird. Well, you know, I mean, I love the inside of the robot here. It's of the so. Android. It is so gross. Like how how yeah. easy would it have been to just make like a robot that has like blood, mm-hmm. like the Terminator? Like the Terminator bleeds human blood. It has human flesh. So mm-hmm. when it gets torn up, you see the you know the endoskeleton, but it's like bleeding and it's still kind of gruesome. Yeah. I, I think this is far more gruesome. Oh, it's way worse than if it were like pink guts and like red blood and oh, stuff. Oh yeah, like this way is, worse. This milky stuff—it's just like, what is that? Well, and I love this right here. I love this look. Look, I mean, well, you can kind of you can kind of tell with that cut, but the cuts—it's not a great cut. It's not a great cut. Ridley Scott apparently is really proud of that cut. Like really? he he points it out in the commentary, I believe that it's like. He he was like, "Oh, this is this is a really brilliant cut right here." It's like, no, that's a we call that a jump cut, and we usually try to avoid those. Yeah, but. I mean, I think that that the idea works really well, and we we have this great moment of her, of of it being you know a prosthetic, of it being a a practical, uh, plastic prop, and then and then it actually being his head through the table, which is fantastic. But but I don't think the cut is done particularly well. Because you see when it happens. Yeah, this is a really unsettling scene. Apparently, there was a different version of this scene where, uh, apparently, according to Veronica Cartwright, um, uh, Ash originally asked them if they had tried to communicate with the xenomorph Mm -hmm. and also said something about the alien being an an experiment of some kind. Yeah. Um, But I couldn't remember if, like, they took those ideas and used them in the sequels in any way. Do they? Is there any point in which... Ellen Ripley tries to communicate or anybody tries to communicate with the aliens on like an intelligent level. I mean, it's been a long time since, since I've seen the other movies, but, um, but isn't there a thing where she like, doesn't she communicate with the queen or something at some point? Uh, and you mean besides calling her a bitch? Mm, yeah. Besides that, it, don't they have like a moment where they like, I don't know. I don't. I, I feel like maybe in Alien Resurrection, Mind there's a there's a thing with like the weird alien thing at the end, like the white the white alien with the human skull thing at the end, where she like communicates with it, mm. maybe telepathically or something. Mm, maybe I not. Know. I may. I'm probably imagining that. I don't remember. It's been I don't too either. long. 
But they certainly, I, I guess Prometheus did get into, maybe I'm misremembering Prometheus. Um, it, this was at the end of the movie, and I you know, was pretty much checked out by that point. <laughs> but didn't Prometheus kind of explore some idea about the alien being, like the xenomorph being an experiment? Like maybe created by the engineers or created mm, by the, the space jockeys like or something? I don't know. I mostly just remember sitting there and watching that movie and being disappointed. Pretty much that's most of what I remember about that movie. Pretty and disappointing. I don't know if I said this before, but I really appreciate, I really love Veronica Cartwright's performance. I really love how she just falls to pieces. I think mm. I may have said that. Um, she's got a great face for it. Yeah. Like just the bug eyes, the wide eyes. Yeah, the you know, way that is that is something that that the the thing didn't have was any females in the cast, any women in the cast, but it still had the pinup girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that's that's interesting that in this movie you've still got the pinup girls like hanging up on the wall. But it's used differently in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. It's used. I mean, it's right there. Where do we see the pinup girls? When do we see them? We see the pinup girls when she is being uh, attacked by a male who is trying to shove a phallic object a phallic sexual object because it's probably a porn magazine down her mouth he's trying to kill her by raping her right and that's when we see the pinup girls i mean it's obviously making a point it's obviously talking about objectifying women and Mm -hmm. and where that leads to what it leads to when we objectify women which is violence against women so, so this very is very different use. This is where Jonesy comes back. Up. Is it right here? Okay, she's powering up. Okay, she's powering up the narcissist, which is a Joseph Conrad reference. Oh, is it? Yes, I, I mentioned Joseph Conrad before because uh, Nostromo is the title of a Joseph Conrad book, mm-hmm. and then the little space pod that she's powering up now, the escape pod, is called the narcissist, which is also the title of a Joseph Conrad mm. book. Okay. And then there's a smaller ship inside the little ship that's called the Heart of Darkness. Is there? Nope. Just kidding. That would have been the only one that I could have talked about because that's Actually, the only that's, one I've read. That's the pod that she puts uh, that she puts Jonesy in because mm-hmm. Jonesy's such an asshole. Jo- <laughs> Jonesy gets to sleep in Heart of Darkness. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you need to back up off my Jonesy. Oh, here's oh, that's your it. favorite. Oh, that's shot my favorite in shot in the movie. Oh my god, I love that shot so much. It's a great shot. The shot of them pushing the, the, cart, the cart through and the light, um, the light like going dark and bright in your eyes as they go past the big, I don't know what they are, shelves of coolant or whatever. What happens to this coolant? Does it make it to this, the rescue pod? I, I don't even know what it's for. I You know what? Actually, she does say she, she did get the coolant because she does say something toward the end where she tries to shut off the uh, self-destruct that she mm-hmm. turned on the coolant system, but it's already too late. And she's yelling at mother, the computer, mother, remember? Right. But I, but she needs the, she needs the coolant for the escape pod. That's what she needs it for. They're, right. they're putting it here for the escape pod. I guess I, I, my problem with this ending here, and it's, it's not a big problem because usually by this point of the movie, kind of like with a lot of these like longer sci-fi 70s, 80s uh, movies, I usually by the end am kind of getting weary, you know? Yeah. Um, the thing was the same way for me as much as I love that movie. By the end of Both, it, I get a bit weary. Uh, this, this, I mean, 
you feel the length of these movies, and I think that's something that's something that I can say about The Fly. I I, I think The Fly is a better movie than than both this and the thing. I really do. I enjoy it more. Um, but you never the, the Fly is not long, and it doesn't feel long. It's not that this movie's long. This movie's two hours. Are they in the escape pod right now? Is that where they are? Um, yeah, maybe. that's the I only think that's thing a, that makes yeah, sense. I think they're to me. they're unloading the the coolant into the escape pod right now because Ripley has left the escape. She's pod left at this the escape point pod to looking to search for, for her cat because if you didn't know, in space, no one can hear your cat be an asshole. <laughs> that is, that's the tagline. Uh, good job. I like that tagline. Yeah. Very good job. I mean, Ripley is doing exactly what I would do if I if I knew that the only way to save my cat was to potentially sacrifice the remaining crew of my ship and also put, potentially put my life in danger and and maybe die. She has. I would I would still go after. Okay. Said cat. Ripley, Ripley's a cat lady at heart, and I can sympathize with that. And she's even got kind of got that like curly cascading mane of a cat lady like a, a a cat lady that's got good hair but she doesn't take care of it so because it's she's like, too busy taking care of her cat right fur? right and there okay. there may or may not be litter in her hair <laughs> what just a little bit what you need to maybe back up off of the objectification of cat ladies i'm not objectifying cat ladies I might be. I'm just. I'm stereotyping. Yeah, I'm just but, throwing uh, something out there. At this is point. also problematic. <laughs> Back up off, cat ladies. Uh, how convenient that there's a cat carrier right there. Do they just keep cat carriers in various parts of this ship, just in case someone wants to carry the cat somewhere? I mean, I guess if you if if you're determined to take a cat with you on your space adventure, you should take a cat with you on your space adventure. I don't know about that. Um. Definitely for calming and relaxation purposes. Yeah, I'm well, telling your, you. Your grandpa still took your cat to the beach. What does that have to do with anything? I mean, <laughs> because that proves that it's a bad idea to take the cat anywhere. <laughs> who, des- who decides that you take... It's like, we're going to go on vacation. Let's take the cat with us. And you took it to the beach... And it ran away because, of course, it ran away. But then it made it back home. Yeah. Well, it, the moral of that, st- the important part of the story is not that Grandpa took the cat to the beach. The important part of the story is that the cat crossed the Adirondack Mountains to return right. home a month later. That's the important part of but the story. My point is, if you're, if it's a bad idea to take the cat to the beach, who would take a cat on a space adventure? I would. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that answers the question of why you're not on a space adventure right now. <laughs> no, it does not. The reason I'm not on a space adventure right now is because I didn't do very well oh in math and science as a child. <laughs> it's going to kill Parker. Oh. oh, Parker. See that right there? Whatever it's going into, I know it's supposed to be going into his head. Uh huh. But I, I can look at never that. Tell. Look at that. It looks like. Look at the tail coming up. It looks like it's going to penetrate her vagina. It does, but it was actually that. Those were actually uh, what Brett's feet. What? Harry Dean Stanton, what are you who is a about? national treasure. By God. Okay, but why are those his feet? Because they uh, they didn't use it in the scene, in his death scene, so they decided to just turn it into. Um, What's her name? 
Lambert. Lambert. Yeah, I turned it into Lambert's, use it as part of Lambert's death scene because she does kind of die off camera. Like you mm, don't actually yeah. see what happens to her. I kind of don't like that she's still incapable as he, even though Parker sacrifices himself to try and save her, she still stands there incapable and doesn't even try to run away. And I get that she's supposed to represent the audience's fears. I get that. I just, I still don't like it. Like I still would rather it be a male character who was going to be that character. Especially in a movie that does so much. For, I, I, for I agree with that. I, I think that I think that you should have had a, a weak male in that role. I mean, fu- I, honestly, I think it would have been cool if Dallas had been a uh, a woman. Well, we can't have all the awesome things in one movie, can no, we? we? Can't. You know, Harrison Ford turned down the role of Dallas again. How, can't have how? all the awesome <laughs> things in one movie. Hey, come on, Tom Skerritt's legit. Uh, he's no Harrison Ford. He's no Har- No, he's not. He's not a Harry. He's no Harrison Ford. Um. Does that make you think of your Star Wars trailer again? Yeah, it does. And I'm just, I I know it's (laughs) happening and it's freaking me out. Um, Danger. I I did, I did want to mention that, that now that we have our final girl, Uh so to speak. um, You got to put the penis into the vagina hole. Okay. Twist it around. I got you. I know. I got you. Um, I, I do have to say that this even though it is really a horror movie and you could even call it a slasher movie. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Which is why I think, you know, like Texas chainsaw can be called up. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's, I don't know. I don't know if I see the, the, we've said that before, but I I don't know if I see the inspiration there. Uh, But what I was, what I'm trying to say is that the first death in the movie, the chest burster scene Mm -hmm. is the most gruesome death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've got a couple after that that are basically off screen. Like we don't see Dallas die, but yeah. we know he dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really see Lambert die, but we know she dies. And you know, we we don't really see Brett die either. Mm-hmm. Like we we he gets picked up by the alien. Well, we would if um if uh, the dream of the three hour version of this movie had happened, then oh, then we would have we would have gotten the famous deleted scene. I know, I know, I'm an old ass stupid man for saying that like long movies are like movies should l- learn how to trim the fat, so to speak. This story is so simple. There's no need for it to be two hours long. You really feel the length of it. I feel the same way about the thing. Uh, and just knowing that there is a three, there was a three hour and 12 minute cut of this movie is just like, calm the fuck down, Ridley Scott. <laughs> Get your head out of your ass. What are you, what are you thinking? Um, I would watch it, but I mean, I think the, I have the patience to read books, I think which pa- takes more than three hours. Yeah. So. But the, yeah. But the, the, I think the pacing of this movie is good, but it could be great. It could yeah, be yeah. Great. No, I agree. I agree that this movie lags a, lit, a bit at the end. I agree that the thing lags at the end, too. Uh, this is the moment that has she got? Yeah. Okay. This is where I get totally confused by the ending of this movie. I was already a little bit confused because I wasn't sure about... Um, about I think the confusion starts because I... When, when Parker and Lambert bring the the coolant to the escape pod. I don't know they're in the escape pod. The, this, we talked about the like sense of space in this movie and how the sense of space is really fantastic. We have mentioned it, yeah. Um, like how, you know, when it's supposed to feel really big, it feels really big. Oh, when we're okay, supposed so to feel so tense and tight, it feels tense and tight. Right. Like spatially, the movie is evocative of claustrophobia, which is right. good. Or, or evocative of, you know, extreme spaces as well. 
Open spaces. Yeah, extreme open spaces. The sense of scale is great, but also the sense of claustrophobia is great when it wants to be. Right. However. However, the audience's understanding mm -hmm. of where things are in space, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think is very good. I don't understand how the ship is laid out. Right, yes. Um, which is something that even in something like, like I, I wouldn't say that I know how the Death Star is laid out, but I never felt confused by it. Right, but I mean, I know how some spaceships are laid out. I know how Serenity is laid out. Yeah, you right? know how Serenity, there's that I know the exactly. I know that, exactly yeah. where, like if I want to go to somebody's quarters or, or the main bridge yeah. or whatever in Serenity, I can tell you how to get there. I mean, I think the Millennium Falcon is pretty, mm-hmm. like it's a smaller yep. ship, but I think that you have a better understanding of where things are in the Millennium Falcon. So I don't, think it's about it being and I but it's I not suppose... just it's not just about spaceships like there's a like we talked about this I think we talked about this poltergeist in the, we talked about it in poltergeist we talked about it in the very first episode in Beetlejuice we talked about how the the direction of that movie and your spatial understanding of where things are in the house you could map out that house like yeah it's it's that well made and that there's an understanding that is imparted to the audience about where things are in that house based on how it's shot that right. I think is you know and that, and that basically, like, um, what the whole point of me talking about this is, is that I don't get that from the end of this movie. And it's not a problem earlier on in the movie. I could even say that not understanding where stuff is laid increases out increases the tension. The tension. Yes, yes. Yes, I could even say that. However, it becomes a problem for me at the very end of the movie. And the reason it becomes a problem for me is because I never remember that Parker and Lambert... Um, that when they have that coolant in the scene where they die, where the alien kills them, I never realize that they're in the escape pod when that happens. Right. And so what happens after that is number one, I'm left thinking, what about that coolant? Didn't they need to get that coolant? Why did they get that coolant? How's Ripley getting off this ship if how, she doesn't have that, that coolant? coolant? How about that coolant? Right. So there's that that happens is because I never realized that they actually do get it to the escape pod. The other thing is that. When when Ripley's running back to the escape pod with Jonesy, um, after she has set the ship to self-destruct, she meets the alien. And in because I don't have that spatial understanding, I feel like she just meets the alien any old where in the ship. And so when she runs back and tries to stop the self-destruct, I'm really confused. And I'm like, why is she trying to stop the self-destruct now? I don't get it. The reason is, of course, that the alien who just killed Lambert and Parker in the in the escape pod is now blocking Ripley's path to the escape pod. So she goes back to try and stop the self-destruct because she thinks she won't have time to get inside the escape pod. Right. Because the alien's blocking her way. Right. And she sacrifices Jonesy. But you have to expend way too much brain power to figure that out or to think to think of that. Oh, it took me a couple rewatches this time before I realized it. Before I figured it out and I was like, okay, right. now and I it get doesn't, it. I don't think it really increases the tension. All it does is make you ask the question, why is she yeah. doing like, the wait, things why she's is doing? She, why is she stopping you don't the self-destruct? Why yeah, is no, she absolutely. mad that she didn't self-destruct? Like, I'm I'm very confused by it at that, at that moment. So now, of course, I... And having having watched this movie so many times that I can pick up on the little visual cues like the spacesuits and stuff were dangling there when Parker was killed. Um, and those cues were enough to let me know what was happening. But but that spatial that sense of space really, uh, really creates a problem for me at the end there. Yeah. 
Um, I think that shot right there of her sitting down at the cockpit and you mm-hmm. can see her inside there. Yeah. I think that was lifted by Roland Emmerich for Independence Day. Because that looks really similar oh, to some I shots. I know exactly the shot that you know you're talking, talking about. about. Yeah, like when it's still inside the yeah, government Yeah, it's like it's dead on. Well, I don't know if it's still place. inside the government headquarters. Maybe it's when they're in the mothership. Or when they're in the mothership. Yeah, yeah I know what like you're talking about. It's like dead on and, like and they you wave can and see them inside. Yeah. I don't know. It, 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 it really looks like That's that That's a me. movie that I like and you don't. That's a very true thing. <laughs> um. So... So we're going to get all 2001 here. I didn't get to talk about... Oh, we are, yeah. But uh, I didn't get to talk about, uh, just briefly, Lambert's death. We did say that it was off screen. We mentioned Mm -hmm. that the first kill is the most gruesome, which is strange because in horror movies you generally see an uptick uh, in the gruesomeness. Um, But Lambert's original death uh, in the script was that she was supposed to like crawl to a locker Mm -hmm. and like die of fright in there. Mm -hmm. But then in the novelization... Uh, apparently she died because the xenomorph stuffed her into an air vent that she's too big for. Oh, that's awful. Until she dies. Well, that's just terrible. Yeah, um, so this this bit right here where the Nostromo explodes, mm-hmm. we get a triple take. There's right. three explosions. Three explosions. And then on the third explosion, Ridley Scott just goes full Kubrick. Yeah. Like, it looks like the Jupiter sequence, mm-hmm. like with the shit And just for a second. Just, just for, for a second. second. But he yeah, he does. He doesn't he does. get too crazy, but... Yeah, it's weird. Um, Yeah, right here. Yeah. Anyways, though, uh, so do you want to talk feminist theory? That's the last one. Uh, Yeah, yeah, go for it. So we talked about Marxism. We talked about psycho Tear it up, girl. Know what I'm saying? Um, okay, so the biggest thing is that on the surface level, I think this movie is just like people read it as just a feminist movie. You know, we look at it and Ripley's a really strong female character. She's subverting general, gender roles. There are a bunch of instances where like, like when she tries to go in the vent first, but then Dallas intervenes and he denies her and then Dallas dies from doing so. And in the end, she is the one who all the male heroes die and she's the one who takes takes command and she wins out um there's there's a lot of stuff in here that leads up to that uh, and even some some pointed political statements for the time we talked about the the mechanics complaining about their pay raise is a marxist thing of class tension you could also look at it as a feminist thing from the late 70s because at the time this movie was made women were making 60 percent uh 60 cents on the dollar for like every dollar that a man earns Women were earning sixty cents. Um, so, well, and today's not today's better, but 70 don't seventy something seventy eight. So, don't deceive yourself into thinking that it's all fixed. Mm. Um, oh, here's Jonesy going into the heart of darkness. Look at him being a jerk. He's trying to be all scratchy and stuff. I know. She's I've having got, to hold his face so he won't bite her. I've got cats. Look, and look, she's having to pull his claws off her. Man, Jonesy. Well, Jones you know, is he, a, is, he has been through trauma. You back up off that kitty. He's had a hard day. <laughs> this is so an Andre Norton movie. This female protagonist with her cat companion in a sci-fi world. Yeah. It's totally Andre okay, Norton. I'll, I'll buy it. Um. Anyways, though. Okay, back to feminist theory. So basically, like... There, there are a lot of ways to look at this and talk about it positively as, you know, this is like an, a great example of a feminist movie. But then we hit this scene, right? And we hit this scene right here where she's taken off her clothes and she's wearing her little girl panties, which don't I fit do, her. I, I do believe those are children's panties. 
They are not made for an adult. No. But wait till she turns around, and when she turns like around... her ass doesn't even fit in it. No. And it's not like she's got a lot of ass or anything, but she's got an adult ass. I would have believed it more if she was wearing pants. a thong. Like, I would have believed it more, because I, those just look like panties that don't fit. That's all that looks like, is that they don't fit. Um... So we're watching this scene. We've got her erect nipples through her T-shirt. Um, we're going to get a really huge crotch shot. Oh, straight up crotch shot. Yeah. Like it doesn't even hide the fact. The camera moves down so that we can see her crotch. By the way, the way she reacts right here, this is exactly how I react when I find a cockroach like you, in the kitchen. You scream and then you just kind of look at it and go. <gasps> and then I run and hide in a corner and stare at it and try and plot like how I'm going to go about killing it. And half of the terror isn't just that like, oh my God, I'm facing a cockroach right now. But it's like, <gasps> that cockroach was in here the whole time. Okay, so I, I do want to say this and I know where you're going with what you're saying, but this, I understand that at this moment we're supposed to believe this is the final encounter with the alien, with the xenomorph. We're supposed to feel that this is Ripley at her most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I understand that that's kind of where taking off the clothes comes from. She's basically naked. I've always been uncomfortable with how it's, it feels so sudden how she's just suddenly sexualized after having, she's gone this entire movie Mm -hmm. and she hasn't been objectified. She hasn't been given special treatment as a woman. She's barely been gendered. We talked about how the original script was written gender neutral for right. All of I the mean, characters. and even reproductive duties have been put on the man in this. Yeah, movie. exactly. Like the and there's like intentional like subversion of gender roles in the movie that are happening. But then we have this moment where our female protagonist uh, is suddenly sexualized. And I just have a hard time believing... I mean, look at this crotch shot right here. Like, the camera moved down just so we could see her crotch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just have a hard time believing that had this been a male Ripley, that we would see this scene the same way. Uh, no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't have been shown this scene at all. Um, and it just feels so... Like, if you're going to use... You know, if you're going to talk about female sexuality and you're going to use that as a jumping off point for your themes in your in your movie, that's fine. But you can't go your whole movie not sexualizing women and creating like a mood and an atmosphere in this idea, the idea surrounding this. And then suddenly at the end, you're just like, yeah, we're just going to sexualize this woman. Yeah. And we're just going to do the thing that every horror movie does right now for no apparent reason. Well, I think there is an apparent reason. And the apparent reason is that. A lot of feminists read this movie not as a straight example of feminism, but as uh, an example of the anxiety of men during the second wave of feminism. Okay, so second wave feminism is 60s to 80s. That's when like reproductive rights and sexuality and workplace rights and stuff were were, uh, being addressed. Uh, First wave is when we got the vote, basically. Second wave is when we said, hmm, maybe we need a little bit more than the vote. Um so this movie, though, is an example of like all these men during during the second wave of feminism where there was an anxiety and we're talking subconscious anxiety here, but an anxiety that true female equality, if true female equality is achieved, then there's going to be equality across the board in all aspects of life, including reproductive equality. So that means that uh, men would be responsible for half of reproductive duties. And we're, and of course, I know now, like, you've got to have a 
penis right to make a baby but i mean we're talking about half of like the burden of pregnancy and birth right okay so you can see that all through this movie all this stuff of the male body being penetrated instead of penetrating um men getting pregnant men being raped and getting pregnant from it all sorts of stuff like that the burden of pregnancy is taken from the female and put onto the male in this movie um uh, so so you can see where where that kind of stuff goes right and and then this shot here i think and i think a lot of that was probably intentional i think that 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 sort of representation was intentional i think this was not intentional this uh this this scene with her in her panties what i think this was was an actual instance of male anxiety over second wave feminism and what i mean mean from the studio from from the the studio yes is that they they watched a movie because this was not in the script her whole panty thing yeah and they watched i would be surprised if it was yeah they watched a movie where a woman a female is is basically gender neutral throughout the movie and equality is obtained and, and they, they said just don't know how to handle it right and they were like well the only way i can deal with this is by sexually objectifying the woman at the end of the movie men are so fragile <laughs> um and then we're also gonna see uh now the one thing that oh, i love that shot i mean that's a her super her famous the, shot yeah in the spacesuit. all right now i do have a couple of things that i wanted to mention uh, so the strobe lights like strobe lights look cool and all but what is their function aboard this vessel oh well definitely um when you're in a stressful situation the computer knows oh best that, shot in the whole movie Jesus, the, the alien outside the, the yeah it's escape the worst pod looks shot in the whole movie terrible. actually um when you're in a stressful situation science proves that the best thing to help you calm down and better focus is to flash migraine inducing strobe lights into your face yes and also strip down to nothing yes yes those would be the two things that you do uh yeah the the alien the rubber man in a rubber suit looks real bad real bad outside this ship um but I did want to point out that the, fi- the, the, the the last thing that Ripley does to get rid of the alien is she doesn't just eject him from the vessel. It grabs on and then she penetrates him, penetrates it. I guess it's not gendered, mm. uh, penetrates it with um, with like a, a, a phallus, basically, yeah. it's like a harpoon. Uh, and this speech that she's saying right here, this is the screen test. She read this for her screen test that got her the job. Pretty Ripley. cool that it's the last thing in the movie that was the first thing that got her the job yeah it was her idea to sing you are my lucky star while she was preparing to get the alien out of the Mm -hmm. escape pod uh and it cost the studio a bunch of money to buy the rights for it (laughs) they were like what what the hell is this really scott's like it was her idea don't blame me and then they had to buy the rights oh well so that's what happens yeah um so the last thing I want to say about feminism, and then I'll be quiet for theory for the last you know four seconds that we do this podcast today. But uh, basically, the some people see this right here as kind of a dark ending for feminism because it shows it's a representation they say of the male filmmakers' fear of feminism because we leave our heroine lost in space, waiting for rescue for that one last chance. Um, because if she really wins out and gender norms are totally destroyed, the nuclear family will fall apart and humanity will die. 
and you see her you see her portrayed sounds like, sounds like typical like mra type paranoia <laughs> yeah but you see her portrayed like snow white waiting for her traditional gender defined prince to come rescue her from feminist equality she's even inside a, like a glass coffin yes that's yes. pretty cool yeah it is I mean, cool, cool but yeah. you know but like i don't know this is one of those cases where it's like oh was there authorial authorial intent or not like I don't, I, I don't think so, that ma- I, I, I don't think that matters. I think like so many things. Like we talk about how beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I, I also believe that you know, metaphorical value and thematic value doesn't necessarily have to come from the author. No, absolutely not. And there are a lot of theories of cr- criticism that I'm learning all about this semester and subjecting you to, where where they actually. Um, uh, refuse and negate any sort of authorial intent. Like if the author talks about something at all, then it it's completely irrelevant. It has you aren't allowed to read anything into it right. because of that. So, well, I think um, that's probably going to wrap us up. Do you like this movie? I love. We this haven't really movie. talked about it. You love this movie. I think I love this. I, I think I love this movie too. It's just it's one of those cases of it's almost perfect so the things that i have a problem with are extra annoying mm, because you, know you what I mean? because you want it to be perfect but it's absolutely seminal like it's absolutely an important film. no i absolutely uh, no this question. is this month i'm pretty sure this whole month and we'll wait you know till we do next week's episode but this whole month to me is a month of masterpieces i think so yeah yeah i, I would agree. um sometimes we like to do our b horror stuff and this was not one of those times no definitely not so that's it for Pumpkin Poops today. Don't forget us at our website at popcornpoops.com. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And get in on the convo down at our forums. If you want to help out the show and get a free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops and sign up for the free trial. Or you could just donate directly to us yeah, if we you have really a, felt we have like a, it. We have a GoFundMe uh, page up. We've already met the goal on it, but we're just going to leave it up and allow it to be a catch-all for any donations. Um, you, our wonderful listeners, uh, so graciously pitched in and allowed us to buy a mixer, which allowed us to revive the podcast after kind of a forced hiatus. And we're infinitely grateful. We're just going to leave that GoFundMe page up so if you want to kick in something and help us out we promise it'll all go back into the podcast to make it a bigger better podcast for you the listeners and uh, and we appreciate that every week we feature a friend of the podcast on our popcorn poops podcasting pal and this week the pal is in the in session film podcast so stick around after the show for a few words from them uh, next week, unfortunately, it's the last week in our October of mm. science fiction horror films. So we're going to finish it with, I mean, the best way that we can with the great granddaddy of them all, the original science fiction horror film, James Whale's 1931 movie, Frankenstein. Pumping it up. Or will that be our oldest Frankenstein, film? Frankenstein. We've huh? done so far on Popcorn I think Poops? it will be. Yeah, it will be. It'll beat, uh, it'll beat The Wizard of Oz by... Eight years. Okay. Nine years. Eight or nine years. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's also the first science fiction novel based on the first science fiction novel. Save it till next week, sweetheart. Ever written. <laughs> and it was written by a woman. That's right. I'm sure we'll be talking about that a lot. Oh, yes, we will. If you haven't had enough feminist theory, then <laughs> tune in next week to the Pumpkin Foods. Oh, gosh. Anyways, catch you next time. Take care. We are the Pumpkin Foods. 
Hey guys, this is JD from the Incession Film Podcast. Every week on our show, you can join my co-host Brendan and I as we review the latest films that's out in theaters. It also inspires us to discuss a top three list of some sort, and we have a lot of other fun movie discussions as well. It's always a blast. And we also have a show on Fridays called our Extra Film Podcast. This is a show that gives us the space to talk about the latest indies and art films and other classics that we normally just don't get to talk about on our main show. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and more. In fact, you can just see everything about us, including our social medias at IncessionFilm.com. So join us every week. We'd absolutely love to have you.